Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and it's been a very interesting and expensive week for airlines and travelers. We're going to talk about the news of the week, talk about one of my favorite airports, Ontario, California, which I started using years ago when one of my daughters was in college nearby. Ontario has a fascinating history and has been riding high on many of the latest trends in travel. And we'll talk about one of my favorite games, the Ben Baldanza version of Monopoly. Ben, you rewrote the Monopoly board for the airline industry with some great insights. Are you ready to roll the dice and start moving around the airline's confidential podcast? Yes, I am, Scott. I have the dice in hand. I wrote a Monopoly Airlines edition for my regular Forbes column, and I got terrific responses from a lot of people who thought it was right on like the creativity of applying the industry to a board game and showing visually the dominance that the big four airlines in the U.S. really have and how it'd be hard to win the monopoly game if you're competing against those spaces. So what does that mean about winning in the real airline business today? So I was surprised how well... I think at least the way the industry today lends itself pretty well to the different properties on the Monopoly board. We'll talk more about that later in the show. So let's get going, Scott. You get the first move. Okay. Well, Ben, the Delta pilots landed on boardwalk this week when 78% of the Airline Pilots Association members approved a new contract that will increase wages 34% by 2026, and include improvement for them in scheduling, retirement, and other benefits. Delta said other employees, which are mostly ununionized at Delta, will get raises too. And so will the rest of the industry. The new Delta contract sets the standard for negotiations underway at other big airlines, namely American, United, and Southwest. Some of them might fall into place fairly quickly as long as they get what Delta got. I think management has more comfort knowing they are roughly paying the same as competitors. And if I were a union leader, I'd be worried that a recession might be coming and I'd want a deal before the economy turns soft and airlines cry poor. Pilots have the upper hand these days, of course. They are in short supply and it certainly costs more to become a pilot because of the 1,500-hour rule. Here's a little bit of economics on it. The Delta Union said the raises were valued at more than $7 billion over four years. So I went back and compared that to Delta earnings. The last four years, Delta has had losses totaling $6 billion. That's the pandemic, so not really a fair comparison, we hope, to the next four years. The four years before the pandemic, Delta averaged earnings of about $4 billion per year. So the pilots are getting close to, but a little bit less than, half of that. You can probably say higher wages for other work groups will push that over 50% of the typical past earnings each year. So there will be lots of pressure on Delta and all airlines to push ticket prices up. Airlines can't always easily do that. Competition and demand sets prices, not airline costs. There's a history in this business of agreeing to big contracts in boom times and then suffering under them when the economy goes south. So let's hope air travel demand stays robust. Let's hope travel really is a necessity in people's lives. Let's hope there's not another pandemic. What's your analysis, Ben? I can't disagree with your analysis, Scott. I think you got it mostly right or maybe all right. The issue here is that Delta knew that pilots were going to get good raises by setting the standard they did and going first 
they may be making the bet that, hey, the American guys and the United team, maybe they're going to be okay getting just what we got, but maybe they're going to want what U.S. Airways used to call parity plus one, right? We need to be a little more. So Delta may be thinking in the short term, what I'm paying now for my labor, including pilots and other wages I'm going to increase, might make me uncomfortable against the earnings I've had historically. But when I think about what the ending conditions are going to be for my major competitors, I feel better about my relative position and likely what maybe we'll be able to do with fares, at least business fares. Because you're right when you say that the market and the competition define the fair level, that's very true at the commodity level and for the leisure traveler who many times will accept some compromises to save money. Maybe the type of airline they fly on or the time they fly or the number of connections they make, for example. But business travelers don't make those kind of compromises generally. And Delta, American, and United sort of carry most, if not all, of the corporate business travel in the U.S. So if those three are aligned on what their cost structure is for labor going forward, which Delta by setting the standard hopes to do, then maybe they feel that at least on the business side, we can recover some of that because everyone who carries that traffic is going to be in the same boat. What do you think of that addition to your analysis, Scott? Yeah, I think that's really smart, Ben. I think that's spot on and and really interesting. Um, You know, Delta has a revenue premium over uh, American and United. So you could certainly see how if Delta says our pilots are happy with the contract, American gets a little bit more, United gets a little bit more, but those airlines are going to have a tougher time uh, than Delta paying for that. And I do think Southwest will slot somewhere in right in the middle um, probably very quickly. Uh, they haven't had raises for a long time. Um, and I think both management and labor are eager to to move on quickly there. So it's going to be very interesting. But yeah, it, it, uh, Delta's taking a, a risk here, but uh, I think you're right. There may be a first mover benefit to them too. So Ben, some other interesting news this past week. American updated its customer service plan to say it would, quote, guarantee, quote, children will be seated next to an accompanying adult at no additional cost. The policy applies to children under 14 and includes families who buy basic economy fares. American says in its plan that adjacent seats need to be available when you book. It appears, though the plan doesn't say it, that American's booking system will assign seats to families even if you buy basic economy, which doesn't typically come with assigned seat privileges. This seems a bit tricky to me. First, families have to drill into the customer service plan to find the conditions that they have to meet. And the plan itself isn't all that clear. It seems like American is checking a box to get political pressure off its back, but it certainly should explain to families how this is going to work so that this doesn't become another airline policy gotcha. Yeah, we promised to get you seats together, but only if you met this criteria and oops, sorry, you missed one of the criteria. This is a great light to shine on this, Scott. I think you're right. I think American wanted to come out quickly reading the political tea leaves as United and Frontier already have done and say, we got to get on board this family seating thing, and we can't ignore the people who buy the cheapest fares, which in American's world 
are the basic economy fares for low-cost carriers. That's all their business, right? And so I think it's great that American is signing on, saying we agree this is a good thing. But I think they have a lot of questions to answer, just as you pointed out here. The other thing that's interesting is they've sort of set the standard at children under 14, which matches Frontier, but United's still out there at children 12 or under. And I still believe there's going to be some calibration where everybody's going to end up defining the age of a child that by hook or crook needs to be seated next to a known adult is probably the same on all the airlines eventually. So my guess is American wanted to get out quickly with the policy, but is still figuring out all the details of how they're going to make that guarantee work. Guarantee is a tough word to use in marketing. Because people hear that and it means to them, I get it no matter what. It's a guarantee I'm going to sit next to my child. So don't start telling me later I didn't do it soon enough or I didn't buy the right fare type or I picked the wrong flight or something like that. It's a guarantee. Yeah, and it certainly worked with the president because he singled out American and, and praised American this week. I also think it puts more pressure on Delta. Delta's the airline we haven't heard from. Delta has said it doesn't charge family seat fees or, or fees for families to sit together, but it does charge seat fees, and we've shown how that can pressure families into buying seats uh, because there aren't free seats available adjacent to each other. And so I think Delta's going to have to address this. That's the last big airline that hasn't. And Ben, we had two somewhat scary news notes this week. First, a fire started in an overhead bin on a Spirit Airlines flight from Dallas to Orlando. We don't yet know what caused the fire, but we do know that 10 passengers and crew had to be taken to a hospital in Jacksonville, Florida after an emergency landing. Fire is never a good thing in the air. It really is frightening. Second, a passenger at Lehigh Valley International Airport in Pennsylvania checked a bag that had explosives hidden in the lining. With a three-inch circular explosive pack were two fuses and a powder concealed in wax paper and plastic wrap. TSA discovered the material. Kudos to TSA. When the passenger was paged at the airport, he ran away. He clearly knew he was doing bad, but he did check the bag under his name, so the FBI chased him down and charged him. He was ticketed on an Allegiant flight to Orlando. It's not clear what this is all about. My understanding from news coverage is that it wasn't a functional bomb yet. There was no trigger attached to the explosives, but it could have exploded because these are dangerous, unstable materials. There's been speculation it may have been a dry run of sorts to see what he could get through security, or he may have been trying to take some stuff to Orlando for whatever reason. It doesn't look real innocent when you hide it in the lining of your suitcase and run when your name is called. We'll have TSA Chief John Pekoski on in a few weeks, and we'll ask him about this and whether threats are starting to increase again against airplanes. That was a very scary incident, Scott. This guy clearly knew he was doing wrong, and like many criminals, wasn't the sharpest knife in the tool chest, right? Yeah. By, by uh, running away, but it, it was very easy to find out who he was, and they got to him. Yeah, and... It's a very small airport at Lehigh Valley International. You know, it's one of the reasons Allegiant flies there, right? And so he probably thought maybe their TSA isn't quite up to snuff. He probably wouldn't have tried this at Pittsburgh, for example. So I think it'll be great to have the TSA chief on in a few weeks and ask him about that for sure. 
on the spirit one with the fire, that's scary for a couple of reasons. I don't know anything about this, but what I'm going to say, Scott, is that I hope it's not a battery inside a piece of luggage that got overheated and caught on fire. We know airlines tell people to take the batteries out of your bag when you check them. And we ask people to not fly with the batteries because those batteries can, if they get too hot or they get under pressure, can ignite. And I hope that wasn't the case here because if that was the case, there's likely going to be some bigger issue coming down around how to regulate batteries on board. Not that that would be a bad thing to regulate not bringing batteries on board airplanes, but I don't want this to become the next cause celeb for Congress to focus on. So I hope they find it was something you know, that was truly a one-off and not something people can grab on and say, let's get a new regulation here. Yeah. And I think, I really hope it's approached from the end of, from the battery end of the problem, not the airplane end of the problem, where maybe there needs to be more regulation, more testing, more, more uh, work on design safety with lithium-ion batteries or whatever the material is. I know there have been some fires uh, on the ground from electric bicycle batteries. And so, you know, everything we use now comes with a battery. And, uh, and I think the important thing is to make sure that the batteries don't catch on fire. Um, not that we're going to try and uh, ban them from airplanes because that's, that's going to be a losing battle. One other thing, Ben, I wanted to note about uh, the Lehigh Valley incident. Um, you know, when we check a bag, we have to give people some form of ID. And that clearly made a difference here, right? Uh, because they knew who this guy was. And I think, you know, as uh, I know there's a lot of privacy concern about uh, facial recognition and other more accurate, uh, you hope, I know there are accuracy problems with facial recognition, but IDing people uh, on airplanes is done for a reason. And this is exactly it, um, among others, uh, right? You need to be able to check people against watch lists and, and no fly lists and things like that. But even the act of checking a bag, if he had done it under a fake ID with, uh, with a fake name, might have been much harder to to catch. Uh, so the ability to spot fake IDs, to, uh, to accurately check names in computer databases and all, really does make aviation safer. Airlines Confidential appreciates the support of our great sponsors who bring you this podcast all year long. We especially want to thank Pratt & Whitney, Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. Its revolutionary geared fan architecture is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And I want to mention an exciting event that we'll be participating in this spring, Aviation Festival Americas 2023, which will be May 16th and 17th in Miami Beach. Scott and I will be on stage on the morning of the 17th, recording the podcast with the audience and a very special guest. And Airlines Confidential listeners get a special discount. Just go to airlinesconfidential.com, click on the banner, and use AC50 to save 50% on your registration. This is the 15th year for Aviation Festival Americas, and it's always also a great group of industry leaders and excellent, informative, 
and topical sessions. We'd love to meet listeners in Miami. So take advantage of that 50% discount and come see us. AC50. Adif Elkadi is Chief Executive Officer of Ontario International Airport in California, straight out I-10 from Los Angeles on the eastern end of Los Angeles County. Adif has more than 17 years of extensive senior-level experience in all aspects of airport operations, marketing, social media, communications, and advertising. He's responsible for everything from day-to-day operations at ONT to community engagement, to finding new and innovative approaches to increasing revenue. It's a pleasure to have you with us on Airlines Confidential. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Adif, tell us about your career and how you ended up in Ontario. You've been all over the world at different airports, including some of the biggest in the world. I think listeners would be fascinated to hear more about your path. Well, I appreciate um, you guys having me on, and uh, definitely it's been um, a journey. I've been very blessed in my career. Uh, If you would have asked me, um, you know, when I was in college as a journalism major, (laughs) working (laughs) at an airport, um, I would have said, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. So I actually graduated from San Luis Obispo, um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo with a journalism degree, and then went and got my master's at University of Southern California. Um, worked in my first job was a marketing coordinator for Pepsi in San Diego. Fun job, did that for a little bit, and then got into the advertising agency space. Did that for a few years, and then in 2008, um, went to visit my dad in Dubai and was there on vacation. Um, met you know expats that were from the U.S. and they asked me if I'd come in for a job interview, and I got a job offer to be a ma- brand manager for Universal Studios Dubai. So I packed everything up and I went. I figured, you know, this would be a great once in a lifetime opportunity. Unfortunately, you know, a few months later, the recession hit in the fall of 08. And uh, we were all told that, you know, we're losing our jobs, but they'll give us three months to find a job. And if uh, we don't, they'll move us back. So in those three months, just through meeting people and networking, um, I got a job as the internal communications manager at Dubai International Airport. You know, I'm very lucky looking back now that Dubai International Airport was my first kind of aviation job. Um, and I spent five years there just really working my way through all aspects of the airport business. After getting tired of waking up at 3 a.m. to watch American football, I figured it was time to head back to the States. Uh, so the family and I um, went back to Texas and I, um, you know, started my U.S. aviation career at DFW International Airport, um, and that was another great airport to be a part of. And the people there are amazing, uh, the community and the way they support DFW. Um, but being originally from California, I always knew I wanted an opportunity, wherever it may be, to come back. And and it was very intrigued by the Ontario International story, and that opportunity. So in 2017. Um, I was given the opportunity to come here, be their senior director of marketing. So I've been here about five and a half years and have kind of worked my way through the organization. So now coming up on this last year being the chief executive officer. That sounds like a fabulous career so far, Atif. Did you work with Joe Lapano at DFW by chance? So um, Joe was actually, he left basically right as I started. So I did not get the opportunity to work with him, but he he left quite a legacy at DFW. Um, there are a lot of people that still um, speak very fondly of him and all of the work that he did in building um, the air service and the marketing over at DFW. Oh, that's great. He came on the show about a year ago. He's now at Tampa, as you probably know, and did a great job representing airport people in general. So I just thought since you were there about six years ago, maybe you overlapped a bit. Well, I'm really curious about the differences and challenges between the big airports you've worked at, like Dubai and DFW, and a smaller airport like Ontario. Are the issues pretty much the same, or what's the day-in and day-out like (laughs) at a smaller airport? You know, and one of the things that we talk about here is we don't look at ourselves as just a small airport. We're an airport, and we feel like we have a lot to provide. Now, overall, if you talk in in general sense, 
you know, airports have a, a lot of the same challenges across the board, medium, small, large hub um, with regards to infrastructure, budget, you know, bringing in air service and airlines, um, a lot of those same challenges. But when you're more of a kind of a medium hub airport, you need to work a little bit harder to get that extra help, if you will, from the federal government. Um, that a lot of times it feels like there's a big focus on just the large hub airports. And what I would say is what I love about being here is it you feel like, and this is not just for me, you know, our, our staff as a whole, because we're, a, a, you know, more of a smaller team, it feels like you're making an impact every single day you're at work and you're really part of a legacy that you're leaving. Um, you know, DXB and DFW, two great airports that have been established over decades, um, you know, able to make a difference there. But here, you know, we feel like we're the pioneers for Ontario International as we continue to build upon our success and our growth uh, since the airport was um, taken back under local control six years ago. So people think of airports as monopolies, but the airport business is really quite competitive. Um, you compete to attract new airline service. You compete to attract travelers and cars who may live near multiple airports. My guess is Southern California is as competitive a market as there is anywhere in the airline and airport business. Is that true? That is absolutely true. And the other thing we compete on is talent. You know, we also sometimes recruit from each other, um, talented individuals. And it's very true. And especially when it comes to air service and where we want to differentiate ourselves. You know, if you look at Southern California, you have about approximately 24 million people. 10 million people live or work closer to this airport than any other airport in Southern California. So we're constantly competing with you know, the other airports in the region about bringing the different air service here and the different amenities that we have to offer um, those travelers. Now, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that there's room for growth for all of us within Southern California. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, educating um, our partners, the airlines and how they bring their business here as well. Well, you've been successful as a competitor, it seems, because Ontario has been one of the fastest growing airports in Southern California. A lot has been written about the population push inland with the pandemic. And certainly travelers are familiar with what a mess LAX is, especially while there's a mammoth building program going on. Burbank and Orange County are seriously capacity constrained. Does that all play into your growth? What do you think are the main drivers of the quick recovery and continued increase in flights? Yeah, I think all of those things you mentioned absolutely um, play a role in our growth. But I think more than that, it's really about educating the general public and our airline partners about what this airport has to offer. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, was a positive impact from the pandemic was so many people moved to this region. Now, if you put uh, San Bernardino County and Riverside County together, it's larger than the Seattle MSA. So we have the population here that wants to travel. It's more affordable to live here than other parts of Southern California, which creates additional disposable income for travel. Um, and what we did see is a shift from business versus leisure travel um, as the pandemic started to slowly wane and people start to go out and want to um, travel more. And what we've done is we've invested heavily in, in our people. Um, our board has been laser focused on our overall customer experience and, and make, making sure that it was a priority for us and how we get help individuals get in and out of our airport. And on top of that, our board has been extremely strategic in thinking 20 years down the road, because as we continue to grow, they do not want to see the type of congestion that you would see at other airports, whether in Southern California or around the country. So we're already working with stakeholders such as the San Bernardino County Transportation Association, Southern California Association of Governments on planning what the future looks like for us and how we can make transportation to and from the airport as seamless as possible. 
Um, and I believe all of those things together has really helped with our overall growth and our recovery from the pandemic and the confidence of the airlines. Um, they, you know, all of our airlines have shown great confidence in our airport by upgaging their aircraft, increasing seat capacity, and some of our new carriers um, that have entered the market in the middle of COVID. It's interesting. I, I, you know, when Ontario, it's a, it's easy in and out. There's there's ample parking, cheap parking. Does that really matter to people when they shop for flights? Do they think far enough ahead? Oh, it's it's easier, you know, cheaper to use Ontario, or or do you have to sort of build that in to get people to say, oh, that's my preferred airport? People do uh, do care about that. You know, our tagline for our airport is SoCal so easy. So you can get to the airport, whether you park or get dropped off at the curb, check in, get through security and get to your gate. It's an average about anywhere from 11 to 12 minutes. Um, you don't necessarily find that at other airports, um, especially in Southern California. So that plays a role. One of the things that many people, we just released this um, this week. If you go to our website, we have this thing called a cost calculator. And you can put in where you want to go. And this cost cal calculator through an algorithm will show what it would cost for your time for driving, gas, if you were to go to other airports, and how it would be a lot cheaper for you if you flew out of Ontario International. And it doesn't just take into account the ticket prices. It truly takes into account all those other factors that go into that decision-making process when you're looking for tickets. So interesting. So you mentioned local control, and uh, Ontario used to be run by Los Angeles World Airports, which runs LAX. Um, and and I, I covered a lot of this. You were kind of the poor stepchild, and the community fought to get back local control. Um, you wrestled ONT away from Lawa. What changed? Um, as we look back on that, did, did it make a difference? You know, I... I do have to say that the people that worked on getting the airport back, you know, I would not be here today if it were not for them. You know, our board president, Alan Wapner, the other members of our board, the city of Ontario and the county of San Bernardino. Um, that was a long, long process. And they came out victorious in the end. November 1st, 2016, um, the airport was officially transferred back. And what changed immediately was the level of investment and care um, that went into Ontario International Airport. You know, from the previous ownership, rightfully so, they had their focus on their main facility. And that's okay. Um, but with the way this region has grown and the amount of the population and the industry that's come into the Inland Empire, it deserves to have an airport that can connect them across the globe and across the country. And so when we started sharing that story and, and many of the airlines started to see um, that growth and the airport investing back into the infrastructure and the technology and the amenities within the terminals, uh, that truly, truly made a difference. You know, you would come here and 10 years ago and the signs for parking were white, faded, etc. You know, within that first year, we had parking signs, um, we had branding up, we did, a, you know, a huge refresh on the inside of the terminals. I remember before I started working here, just living down here, the inside the terminal, there was only a Schlotzky's and an El Paseo and half the time they were closed. Um, now you go into our terminals and you've got uh, Rock and Brews, Wahoo's Fish Tacos, Wolfgang Puck Pizza, and many, many new concessionaires. We'll have a Chick-fil-A opening up here in about three weeks, and we have a brewery that's out of Anaheim, the fastest growing brewery in Southern California, Brewery X, that will open up in Terminal 2 with a Top Golf Swing Suite simulator. Um, so you can have a good time at the brewery, have some food, and um, you know practice your golf game and, on the simulator, which it also has baseball and other sports as well. So it's just a big difference when you come through the airport just the energy, the feel, the vibe, and uh, it, it's it's made a huge difference having it under um, you know the authority. Well, Atif, the demographics of Southern California suggest to some, including me, that Ontario could someday be a really big Mexican and other Latin America gateway. 
especially potentially for a low-cost carrier. Avianca is already flying there, for example. Do you see Latin America as a big piece of your growth potential? Absolutely. I mean, we have Avianca and Volaris that are currently flying from the airport to, you know, different locations in Latin America. And we are confident that that growth will continue um, to happen. You know, we have a flight also, aside from Latin America, that's the first um, flight to Asia that's not from LAX to Taipei, Taiwan. And right now they're back to four times a week. And at the end of March, they will be back to seven times a week. And all of those international flights to Latin America and to Asia, their pasture load factor is above 90%. And the reason being is, as you mentioned, the demographics in the Inland Empire um, with the connections to Mexico City, uh, Colombia, those play a significant role. And while the flight is to Taipei, what we've seen through our research is a lot of people are utilizing it to connect to Vietnam, the Philippines, and mainland China. So there is a lot of potential there. I don't know how fast uh, the growth will come back for Asia, but we are focusing on Latin America and hoping to someday have a connection, uh, a direct connection from Ontario to Europe. So take all that, and what do you think the future of Ontario can be in Southern California? Where, where do you see the airport in 10 years or so? Well, I think, you know, in 10 years, I think it's going to be evident that uh, Ontario International Airport will be the main airport for everybody, business and leisure that lives within our, uh, within our catchment area. And we consider our catchment area San Bernardino, Riverside County, North Orange County, all the way to Pasadena, just because of the easy access in and out of the uh, of the airport. And we continue to see a big growth. We've been extremely successful with our cargo. Um, this is a logistics hub for the western part of the United States. And we don't see that changing just because of our central location connected to the Interstate 10, Interstate 15, and the 60 freeway um, between uh, here and Los Angeles. So we continue to see cargo to play a huge role, and we continue to see us show that we are a hub for passenger traffic to be able to connect you anywhere in the world. Now, I tell a lot of people, they ask me, you know, want a direct flight to London, for example. I say, you know what? I I agree. It'd be great to have that. But let's, let's take a step back. Isn't it easy for you to fly from here to Phoenix or DFW? And then from there, you get a straight shot to London. And then maybe if you were going to another airport in Southern California, you would probably still be trying to find parking or get dropped off. So it's just a matter of the way people think about it and look at it. So you can truly right now connect anywhere from Ontario to anywhere in the world. It's just a matter of how much your time is worth. And and so I see us in 10 years as an airport and an organization really in that conversation of a, a, a strong medium hub airport that's on the cusp of getting into that large hub status potentially. Um, Think where Nashville was maybe 10 years ago, uh, even Austin Airport 10 years ago, and I see that as being our trajectory. I think those are good models, and that makes a lot of sense, Atif. You know, for many years, it seemed like airports were run more for airlines, who are your main customer, and airlines wanted everything cheap so that they could hold down their rent and cost per employment. But PFCs came along, passenger facility charges, and gave airports their own revenue stream. And then post 9-11, people are just spending more time in terminals. So we've seen a lot of improvement in the terminals. Why has that happened, do you think? Did passengers and communities demand it? Or do you get more revenue out of the nicer restaurants and the cleaner parking garages? I think it's a little bit of both. I think you have a, a consumer, consumers in general that are a lot more, they have higher expectations um, and understand that they have options and choices. And with um, social media, the internet, et cetera, that has really given the consumers um, this, you know, the ability to do that. Of course, revenue from nicer restaurants, parking, 
that's always nice. But as we've seen in Europe and the Middle East, when people show up for their flights, not two hours ahead of time, three, four hours ahead of time just to go shopping. And I think that trend has really started to come over here in North America. And it's not about just, okay, I have to get to the airport, go through security, get on the plane and go. I want to go to the airport, be able to relax. Where can I have a good meal? Something to do if I've got children, what can the children do um, and what kind of entertainment? I mean, look at airports across the country. You've got airports that will have live music, different types of entertainment that they're bringing into the mix. Um, And what what we've always talked about is customer experience is not a buzzword. It is an actual uh, thing that we try to provide to all of our travelers coming through our airport. Ease of access is great, but what else can they get out of our airport that they can't necessarily get somewhere else? And so we're very hands-on in that regard. And and airports in general have really t- made a made that a focus of theirs. And I think rightfully so. And I think it's very important. It's not just about the new shiny things because that human interaction will always be a critical part of that passenger journey uh, through any airport, no matter. No matter where it is, and you know, one of uh, one of my mentors in the aviation industry always told me, it is just because they are a um, customer of a specific airline that means they are not, that does not mean they are not our responsibility before and after they get off that plane, and that's always resonated with me. So it's our responsibility to make sure that they have a great, seamless experience. Till they get to the where you hand over that customer to the airline, and then once they leave the airline and get off the plane, it's our responsibility to make sure their experience is a great one as well. It's great to hear an airport leader talk like that, Atif. I think you're exactly right. To that end, do you have a dedicated place for people to meet their rideshare, like Uber, Lyft? And does that work for you? And is it signed really well? I've noticed other airports starting to do this, and the ones that have it and don't seem quite different from the passenger standpoint. Yeah, we actually we do have a dedicated place, um, and it is right at the end of our curb. So you don't have to get on a shuttle to go to it. Um, it's right outside a baggage claim, and it's been extremely helpful and beneficial for the rideshare and for the taxis. Um, And I think that's important. That's part of that overall experience. One of the other things that we've done as an airport that hasn't necessarily been done um, in the way that we've done it, we created a program called ONT Plus. And what ONT Plus does is you go to our website, you fill out a form. It takes about two to three minutes. And in a matter of minutes, you get a QR code back. And that gives you the ability to go through security and either wait for your loved one at the gate or say goodbye to them at the gate or go to one of the restaurants um, or just sit there and watch planes take off. And it's a in partnership that we did this with the TSA. Um, so a lot of people, what we've noticed, while rideshare is important, um, their loved ones will park, they'll come in, and they'll take the time to just go through security and wait for them at the gate. Um, and that's just one uh, option that we've provided. It's really, it provides a little bit of nostalgia pre 9-11 for a lot of folks. And while um, we've done it and TSA has made sure that it still maintains the highest level of security standards that they do for all traveling pastors. Hey, I love that. I, I love the, just the, the idea of coming off the plane and seeing people greeting people. It's, uh, it's really uh, what it used to be. It's, it's fun. Um, so out of what, what don't people know about airports? What what would surprise many listeners, even though they go through airports all the time and, and seemingly know them well? You know, I, I would say that the amount of collaboration that's needed with the um, with the airline partners and with the federal government. You know, when people go through the airport and if they have a positive or a negative experience, it's usually put on the responsibility of the airport, which is fine, but there's a lot of collaboration that has to happen for that passenger journey to be seamless. So I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much work we do with the restaurants, with the airlines, with the TSA, in really trying to 
create this seamless journey. It just, it doesn't happen, you know, naturally. It takes a lot of work behind the scenes for it to happen. And I think a lot of people don't realize that just in their everyday parts of their travel and how much, you know, the people that work at an airport are so committed and enthusiastic about aviation and the industry overall. Well, can't thank you enough for being with us. I love what you're doing. I, 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 lo- I love how you, you refer to the, competitor, the very large competitor to the West uh, sort of as, as uh, the airport that shall not be named. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a fun competition out there. I, I think it's, it's really good for travelers um, to have all those choices. And there's, there's a lot going on that I think is really interesting. So glad we could have you on and keep us up to date someday as, as things change out there in Ontario. Thanks for being with us, Adif. Thank you both very much. And I appreciate the work that you guys do with this podcast and really showing the rest of the world how exciting the aviation industry is. Thank you again for having me on. Thank you, Atif. We really appreciate it and learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Ben, I want to hear more about your Monopoly game. You match different parts of the Monopoly board with the big four airlines and assorted other players in the airline business. Tell us what you came up with. Well, thanks, Scott. You know, I came up with this idea for the class I teach, airline economics, at George Mason University, even though I haven't used it with the class yet. But I wanted to give them a visual description of what competition in the airline business really looks like, at least in the U.S. And then I thought about the fact that most kids play Monopoly. I haven't played the game in decades, but I played a lot as a kid and remember it very well and thought that that's something even my younger students probably would recognize at least. And so I said, if I can show on a physical Monopoly board something they may know about, what the industry looks like, it might give them a better sense of what competition is like. So I started thinking, if I were playing Monopoly, who would be the scariest competitor I had? And I said, that would be anyone who had the yellows and greens with hotels because that's, you know, the two most expensive properties or sets that have three landing spots each. So I said, I got to give that to Delta. And then I thought, well, if that is Delta, Americans a little bigger than Delta. So they have to have more than just two, but maybe they can't be as valuable. So I gave the reds and the oranges and the light blues to American and then that leaves United, who's actually the smallest domestic airline, even though internationally they look much different. So I gave United the purples, like St. Charles Place and such. and But I also gave them Boardwalk and Park Place because Newark is such a unique opportunity for them, the only big airport in New York that can serve both domestic and international travel. LaGuardia is a great location, but is not international. JFK is a little further out. JetBlue's made a nice go making it a domestic airport, but still to many it's thought of as mostly an international airport. So once you have all of those properties taken, It's really hard to compete in a game of Monopoly if you only have what's left. So I gave Southwest all four railroads and one of the utilities because Southwest is unique in the United States. They play in the leisure game and the business game, 
but they're also very large. So I like the fact that there's a railroad on each side of the board suggesting that you can't run away from Southwest wherever you are because they're on every side of the board or in every important city in the U.S. And I also gave them one of the utilities as well because they're a little bigger than just the railroads. Those who play Monopoly know that when you own all four railroads, they all double in value as well. That's hard to do in the real game, but I believe Southwest has effectively kind of replicated that position with their network in the U.S. So once you have all that, it only leaves what we used to call the slums in Monopoly, the dark purples of Mediterranean and Baltic for the ULCCs or the LCCs. So everyone not named American, United, Delta, or Southwest. And that's not a lot of space. And if you thought of yourself in a Monopoly game and only had Mediterranean and Baltic and maybe one utility, can you really compete against someone who owns all the big spaces with hotels and lots of houses on them? It'd be very, very hard. And so I thought this would be a great visual way to show my students what it's like trying to compete as a 3 4 or 5% market share competitor in the U.S., from the feedback I've got, people really liked it. I haven't had anyone say, you got it wrong. Delta should look like this. American should look like this. Even though some people might quibble with the way I laid people out on the board. It, it's really fascinating. And, you know, I think it gets to the question of whether um, in the airline business, if you have a hub in a market, is it is it really a monopoly? And, and I think if you have 70% of the traffic and you control most of the most of the gates, most of the counter space and, and all that, um, you're the airline that has most influence on how the airport is run. It really does become a monopoly situation, and it may be very difficult for a new entrant to get gates. Um, it, you know, we we have very few U.S. airports that have regulated landing slots, but the problem is um, getting that real estate right. The the gates, the uh, uh, even the workers to make an operation go. And are you really going to compete against four hundred flights with two two flights or that kind of thing? Were there any takeaways for you in terms of who's really in the sweet spot? Any surprises as you sort of looked at the board and said, uh, wow, I, that that really puts so-and-so in the best position? Well, I tried a lot of different combinations before I came up with the one that I ultimately publish. And what I like about what I ultimately publish is I think in a real game of Monopoly, all four of the big four have a credible way to compete in the game. Delta has the most valuable set of spaces, which I think is true in real life when you think of Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis, LaGuardia, increasingly Seattle. American has the most number of spaces you can land on, which matches kind of their overall size, and I think that's good. United has two sides of the board with the light purples and Boardwalk and Park Place, but who isn't scared of landing on Boardwalk and Park Place with a hotel on them? And then there's that nasty card that says, take a ride on the boardwalk, that if you don't own them, you can get hit with a real big rent. And so I think United can compete in the game, even though 
they might not be as strong as Delta domestically. And then Southwest, anyone with all four railroads in the utility is going to be in the game because they're going to continually have people land on them. There are multiple cards saying advance to the nearest railroad that send you to Southwest in that world. So what I like about it, Scott, is that all four of the big airlines, if they were playing the game Monopoly in the way I set them up on the board, have a fighting chance to win the game. But who doesn't have a fighting chance? Anyone who's not them. Yeah. And that's kind of the point I was trying to make. Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. It's also to drill down a little bit, a bit deeper. It's fascinating to me. I, I always thought that United had the best real estate. And this has changed quite a bit in recent years. But if you look at United Hubs, Newark, Houston, Chicago, Denver, San Francisco, Los Angeles, those are the cities you want to have. That's a whole lot better than Atlanta, Salt Lake City, uh, you know, or uh, American with uh, Charlotte and, and, and Dallas and smaller in Chicago. U- United had the, the monopoly board real estate, um, but was never able to sort of maximize that or capitalize on it. Or there was, uh, you know, the other airlines outperformed. Now, I do think Delta, as, as you point out, Delta has done so much, the, the Northwest merger with, with Detroit and Minneapolis, but also creating a hub in Seattle, creating a, a focus city and, and maybe hub in Boston, um, turning LaGuardia into a hub and LaGuardia and JFK together, making them the biggest player in New York, even though United was sitting there with the hub already in, in Newark. Um, it's really extraordinary. And Delta's doing it again in Los Angeles. They've got their new real estate open uh, before the other guys. Uh, and they're really making a big push there while United and American are, are you know, sort of uh, losing ground to them, I think, if you, if you look at the, at the market share numbers. So very interesting how United has played the Monopoly board and how, even more so, how Delta has played the Monopoly board. So let's dig even deeper, Scott. And for anyone who doesn't know the Monopoly game, you're probably already saying enough already. But here's the issue with United. You're exactly right. But again, think you're playing the game of Monopoly. Imagine if you own two of the yellows, but not all three of the yellows. Mm -hmm. Or two of the oranges, but not all three of the oranges. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem with United. All the cities you mentioned have been important cities in United's network, but they've never had all three properties under their control the way Delta has. Think about who competes with Delta in Atlanta. No one. There's no airport next door called Midway or Hobby that has a huge Southwest, right? There's nothing. And what competes really with Detroit and Minneapolis? Nothing. Yet in Chicago, you've got a second-place American and a huge operation at Midway with Southwest. And at Houston, you've got a huge Southwest operation at Hobby. And in Newark, you've got to compete with LaGuardia and Kennedy. And the fact that Newark's the only airport of those three that isn't slot-controlled. So anyone who wants to put a low-fare service into New York the only place they can add service is Newark, right? And so that's United's problem is they own good properties on the board, but they don't own enough monopolies using the name of the game. No, same in Denver, right? You would think Denver would be a great hub, but Southwest now carries more passengers than anybody in Denver, I believe. They've built a huge operation there. And you also have Frontier. Um, so you're, you're absolutely spot on. 
and, and fascinating, uh, fascinating how Delta has been able to preserve those monopolies and, and keep competition out. And United, in some ways, over the years, has lost ground in, in many of its cities where it maybe had the opportunity to push people out. You're right. And anyone who plays games or who plays board games and has played Monopoly know you'd much rather have all three of almost any one of the properties than only two of any of the three property spaces because you can just do more with them. That's when you can start building on them. That's when you can make real things happen. That's why the game's called Monopoly. Build as many Monopolies as you can and you win. Yeah. All right. Great lessons for all of us. That's all for Airlines Confidential this week. We'll be back next week when maybe Ben will apply the game of life or maybe trouble uh, to the airline industry. Um, it could be risk or maybe battleship. At least we'll always play Clue on this show. So long, Ben. Have a great week and thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Scott. I'm surprised you didn't mention the game Operation. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.